Hello, and welcome to the turbulent world of Middle East soccer, or Mid-East soccer podcast. I'm your host, James Dorsey. U.S. President Joe Biden's pledge to return values, morals, and ethics to politics and policies is 18 months into his presidency, more of an aspiration than a reality. It is called into question by the crisis in democracy in the United States in the wake of his predecessor, Donald Trump, who questioned the legitimacy of the election that brought Mr. Biden to office. Even worse, Mr. Trump and his followers questioned the principle of a peaceful democratic transition of power and are working hard to introduce at the state level legal and electoral procedures that would jeopardize the principle of one man, one vote. Nevertheless, Mr. Biden has framed NATO support for Ukraine in its resistance to the Russian invasion as a fight of democracy against autocracy, although it is more of a struggle for upholding international law and the rule of law. All of this raises the question whether politics and policies should be grounded in inclusive values, morals, and ethics, and how to square that with realities of realpolitik. The clash between the two was on public display with Mr. Biden's controversial pilgrimage to Saudi Arabia in July, despite his vow during his election to treat the kingdom as a pariah state, and his initial refusal after he came to office to deal directly with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman because of the 2018 killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. To discuss all of this today, I am joined by Ronald Yamas, a senior advisor to former Philippine President Benito Aquino, long-standing democracy and human rights activist, and a master of the darker arts of politics and policy implementations. Ronald, welcome to the show. Thank you, James. No? Uh, thank you so much for inviting me to your podcast. This is my first podcast, and uh, I really appreciate uh, this new twist in my political life. Uh, well, let's see what you say when we're all done, but it's a great <laughs> pleasure and honor to have you. Ronald, we're in the second decade of protests and revolts in various parts of the world that signal not only discontent with specific policies and problems, such as rising inflation and food and energy prices, but also a more fundamental distrust of political systems and leadership. A decade ago, this led to the dramatic Arab uprisings that toppled four autocratic leaders. Today, that fundamental distrust is agnostic. It distrusts not only autocracies, but also democracies. I argued in a recent article that politics and policymaking needed to be grounded in values, morals, and ethics. I know you think this is utopian, and you may not be wrong. Yet the way politics are conducted now and policy is crafted is what got us to where we are now. What do you think? First of all, James, I would like to say that uh, I fully agree with uh, your uh, template, with your proposal in your article, that uh, in this day and age, more than at any other age, we need, uh, we need a template, 
we need a yardstick, we need a baseline for foreign policy, for politics in our in this in this world which is becoming more dangerous. You know? A world where we're on the brink of a new Cold War, a world of pandemic, a world of uh, uh, increasing uh, inequality more than ever, a world of uh, existential conflicts, both in relation to the environment, in relation to the economy, and uh, in relation to a lot of ethnic issues around the world. So I fully agree with the need for this yardstick, a moral and ethical yardstick. But uh, I, I didn't realize that you are more idealistic and more utopian than a socialist like me who have spent my entire life you know, pushing, advocating for such a moral and ethical yardstick. Uh, my, my only issue is that this desire is nothing new. Uh, I think the desire for such a moral and ethical yardstick is as old as humanity itself. Ever since we started to govern ourselves after we came out of the caves, you know, uh, people have been looking for something nobler, something better than what we have now. But uh, I think one starting point is uh, a certain level of assessment of all these initiatives, all these efforts to create such a yardstick. In this modern world, we, we had the United Nations, we have the International Criminal Court, you know? we have uh, COP, the COP uh, 21, COP 22, uh, uh, a lot of COP for the environment. Recently, we have uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, we have the Me Too movement. So in varying degrees, states, social movements, individuals, leaders uh, have been aspiring for such a yardstick. So we, we cannot proceed without a certain level of assessment about what went wrong, why did most of them fail, and why did uh, a lot of them are now in retreat, just as democracy now is in retreat. So that's, the, I think, one of our starting points. What happened in the past? perhaps not in the long past, but in the immediate past, about such efforts like this. So we don't have to reinvent the wheel. No, I, I think that's great. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. I think, you know, one of the keys in all of this is a question of accountability. And that goes to several things. One is uh, the role of the, uh, the media. And again, it's the media in many ways that that is one uh, sort of a transition in communication uh, but also uh, it the, the way media reports creates expectations and uh, so with other words if we if the media maintains the expectations as they are now then likely nothing much will change if the media starts to hold in a sense, take its its uh, its mission of holding power to account, and takes that further, so that 
voters or you know people uh, uh, public the public at large starts to hold me uh, leaders at account uh, that's one way of doing it I think the other thing and I you know I'm, I'm interested in what you think the other part of this is that it's particularly in democracies in you know a place like Washington which a lot of politics uh, is and policy making is influenced by lobbies that you need to hold lobbies, think tanks to account. Perhaps, uh, James, before we proceed into the multifaceted concerns of what you have posed, perhaps I would like to ask you, uh, as a starting point, uh, let's start with the definition of terms. When you say a moral and ethical yardstick, what do you specifically mean? So, so that we can narrow or focus our discussions no? rather than discuss everything under the sun, which falls under moral and ethical yardsticks, perhaps we can, we can delineate it based on your mindset. What do you mean when you, when you pose that issue that we need a moral and ethical yardstick, a principled baseline, not only for international policy, but for politics in general? Well, what I mean with that is several things. One is that uh, a yardstick that upholds or, or, or adheres to values that we uphold, uh, whether those are values of uh, uh, political rights, freedom of expression, freedom of, uh, uh, of the media, whether that uh, upholds, uh, relates to adherence to international law and the rule of law. But it also raises the question of what what inspires our values or what inspires our morals and ethics um, and you know I don't see another alternative than religion to that sort of inspiration with other words um, you know you've had all kinds of attempts communism was a attempt at Re, uh, at replacing religion with a socialist uh, or communist uh, uh, ideology of, of equality, of um, the state being the people, even though it didn't quite work out that way. Uh, Kemalism in Turkey was another attempt to create a modern Turkish society carved out of the ruins of the Ottoman Republic that was not really based on religion. On religion, Zionism is a third uh, uh, example. All of those worked for a period of time. The only thing that has worked over uh, centuries, thousands of years, has been religion. And if you look today at uh, at countries like the United States and Saudi Arabia, so a secular democracy and a country that for the longest period of time and still today is basically ruled on the basis of religion. Uh, what you see is the one thing that they share in common is that their yardstick, the moral and ethical values that they use as benchmarks is a religious inspiration. Well, I would like to start with my own personal experience, James. For the past uh, two decades, I've been part of two global movements which in a way would like to uh, create a moral and ethical yardstick for politics, for how we 
do things. Not only in the short term, but also in the long term. Uh, one is the World Social Forum, which by this time have practically disappeared, perhaps after the funding agencies took over the project. Uh, it was a global movement, basically, of civil society, progressive coalitions. It was very promising. We held our conferences around the world, Latin America, Asia, Europe. Uh, but after a decade or so, just practically disappeared. But the movement is exactly what you are referring to, an attempt to create a yardstick for moral and ethical baselines. And political parties were not invited to be part of that global initiative. Another is the Socialist International, which eventually fragmented into the Progressive Alliance and the Socialist International. It's a coalition of political parties since the 1950s and 1960s, which tried to create a more humane kind of politics, a more humane kind of economics. Uh, the more prominent leaders of this movement was Willy Brandt, uh, Ola Palme, etc. But today it has fragmented into insignificance and into various initiatives. It is basically uh, uh, based on political parties uh, separate from the World Social Forum. So these two projects, one is overtly political, one is more social, encompassing a more comprehensive agenda from climate to identity to gender as well as class and then the other which is more political in how to create a political economy which is more humane and if i may judge both have failed both have failed but at the same time i'm very ambivalent with your conclusion that the only thing or the only term of reference which we can use for such a moral and ethical yardstick is religion. Because as I told you before, I'm not sure how religion, which was an intrinsic part of the, the problem of history, which is an, an intrinsic part of uh, uh, the crisis the world is confronting now, based on history, can be the solution, can be the, 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 the parameter for such a moral and ethical project. So you still have to convince me uh, substantially how, you know, uh, in a very, in a, in a world facing such existential challenges like war, pandemic, uh, economic collapse, uh, how can religion which was intrinsically part of the problem, be part of the solution? I think there's several things. One is I agree with you on your analysis of uh, uh, the World Social Forum. And in fact, you know, what you said raises a, a major issue. Uh, and that issue is what happens when a movement like the world's uh, uh, social movement, when that gets co-opted by either vested interests or the powers that be. 
which essentially is what the funding agencies are that you were mentioning. Um, I also agree with you with, 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 uh, in terms of the Socialist International, and I was uh, knew various of the leaders at, the, at, its, at its heyday, Bruno Kreisky of Austria and Olaf Palme of Sweden, Den Eyl, Joop Den Eyl of the Netherlands, um, and Willy Brandt, for example. And yes, I mean, with the rise of the Labour Party under Tony Blair and so on, that movement has lost a lot of its allure. But the, the coming back to the fundamental issue is it's, yes, religion has been a major contributor to, to the problems. And at some point also, at some points also an instigator of problems. It, but it, on the other hand, is the only yardstick that has proven to be sustainable over centuries. And there is virtually no society today, uh, and I would even include China in that, uh, in, a, in a weird way. Uh, but there's almost no society today whose moral and, and ethical values and benchmarks are not inspired by a religion. Whether I like it or not is besides the point. And the issue with religion, of course, is that it's multi-interpretable. So with other words, um, uh, you, can, you can use it and, and make, it, make it work for you in whatever way that may be. But if you look at, if you wish at the top level, all of these principles of dignity, of compassion, of mercy, of honor thy neighbor the way you honor yourself, all of these principles uh, that in fact the socialist movement, the social democratic movement adhere to, all of those principles come out of religion whether we like it or not. Yes, in a way, uh, James. But you have to separate faith and religion. What you are talking about are elements of faith, not necessarily religion. Religion is the concrete manifestation of faith, which in a way becomes much more imperfect, yeah, like politics. Uh, 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 politics is uh, the realities of power. Politics is also the reality of religion. Religion is the political manifestation of a faith which is very strong on this yardstick we are talking about. The yardsticks of morality, of ethics, no? the yardstick of uh, uh, do unto your neighbor <laughs> uh, the best no? uh, of humanity. That's a faith dimension. But once that faith takes form in a religion, then a lot of problems happen. Genocides happen. Crusades happen. No, uh, ethnic cleansing happen. No, uh, uh, patriarchy happen. No? Which is to a great extent an, an integral part of organized religion. No? So I would like to separate the two. I agree with you that religion has positive impulses, and that is the faith dimension. But once it takes form in a political arrangement in a church, you know, then 
lot of things, a lot of problems happen. Uh, yeah, I would I, rather look. look uh, yeah, I would rather look at it dialectically. There are positive as well as negative elements in religion, just as there are positive and negative elements of social movements, of civil society, or political parties, uh, agrupate, agrupation, or uniting under, like the Socialist International. What I would rather uh, uh, propose is do the exercise you know, of, as you said, kickstarting the process of getting positive impulses from all these human projects. Human in the sense that they are imperfect, but human in the sense that they are also aspirational. They aspire for something better. Rather than simply looking at one aspect of that, which is religion. I think the, okay, first of all, granted, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to, to go along with your uh, distinction between faith and religion. Uh, and I would also go along with the fact that the moment religion is politicized, religion becomes a problem. Now, having said that, I, I, I'm not sure that it is that that is only true for religion that structures itself, for example, in a church as the Catholic Church did, or as a vast number of Protestant churches do. Um, you look at Islam or Judaism that do not have a centralized hierarchy. And yet you see the same sort of problems arise with uh, when, when religion gets politicized. Uh, having said that, I still think that uh, at the end of the day, and it's just you know, a, fact, a fact of life, that and it's also why China is uh, so stark in its efforts to control and repress religion, which in a sense is an affirmation of, of, of religion's role. But fact of the matter is that virtually every society I can think of and know across the globe are societies who basically hark back to religion or religiously inspired um, values and morals and ethics. And I'm not talking about issues so much as uh, uh, abortion or uh, LGBT rights, These are the very controversial ones, but the very sort of very general principles that most religions uh, claim that they uh, provoke or, or, or evoke. Now the question, you know, the question here is how do you get from A to B? And one interesting proposal that I came across uh, recently was the idea that you would oblige politicians, um, analysts, pundits, and maybe even journalists in the sense, although uh, that is embedded in journalism in many ways, at least in proper journalism, is the idea of the equivalent of a Hippocratic oath that you have in medicine. And the Hippocratic Oath is a pledge not to do harm to, to your patients, to others. And whether or not that's something that, you know, if one, uh, if one introduced in, as a standard of policy, politics and policy making, 
whether that would be one way of helping us get from A to B. I, I agree, uh, uh, James, that uh, a Hippocratic oath is a good term of reference, a good uh, part of the baseline we are talking about, you know? uh, to do no harm, to do no harm. It is, in a way, encapsulates the positive impulses in humanity, whether of religion, movement, or a political system. Uh, uh, I agree. But uh, uh, as you said, one of the reasons you choose religion as, a, as an alternative baseline is because of its sustainability, because of its survivability. But you have to realize that it was sustained and survived because it became a political entity from faith into a bureaucracy. If I may say so, during a large part of its history, even as an army and as a state, that's how it's that's a very Christian. That's a very Christian yeah. history. Yes, yes. Because I mean, that's where you know, I, I'm coming from. It's a very Christian that. history. That's not to say that Islam and Judaism didn't have armies. But they never crystallized into the kind of institution that the church is. Well, so Islam there is, no is both a vote. state and a religion, in a way. No? Sorry? In, yeah. Uh, in a way, because Islam is both a state and a religion, a religion no? by itself. It's not, it's, a, it's not simply a religion in the Christian sense. No? Uh, Christianity tries to advocate, although hypocritically, the separation of church and state. The, 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 the compelling reason as well for the survivability of Islam is because it's a synthesis of both the state and religion. So I agree it's different, but in a way it has adopted. It is an adaptation. That's why it's also survived and is sustained up to now. And I agree with you that in a way China has religious component. Not only as a communist dogma with, how do they call it, with Chinese characters, but because Chinese communism, in a way, is a fusion of different impulses. It has a strong Confucian foundation. It has a, a strong Middle Kingdom foundation and also certain elements of Buddhism uh, within the social construct of socialism with Chinese characters. That's why it's, a, it's, it's different from the Soviet model. It's different from the European model uh, because it has components of religion within itself. I mean, it, it, you know, I think that, but this would take us too far in the discussion. You know, what you were mentioning about uh, Islam as Islam basically combining religion, faith, and the state. I think what really sets Islam and Judaism on the one side, as opposed to Christianity, are two things. One is what we were talking about before, hierarchy, that doesn't exist in that way in Islam and Judaism. But the other thing is that Islam and Judaism are much more uh, faith that have, uh, a, a, that have a whole legal framework. There's much more of a of a legal aspect to Islam and Judaism than there is to Christianity, and it, and and so 
but you know, that may be taking us too far. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the issues that I have and that I, that I you know, is that we're, we're dealing with, in terms of the crisis of confidence that we're seeing across the globe in leadership and in political systems, uh, and we're seeing also in the, uh, the rivalry between the United States on the one hand and China and Russia on the other, is the issue of, you know, of, of double standards. And we're seeing double standards on multiple levels. So they're the double standards in terms of the, you know, uh, obviously uh, held against the United States of saying one thing and doing another and therefore being hypocritical. And the United States never having been able to sort of uh, harmonize on the one hand its lofty ideals and on the other hand that those ideals are not universally implementable at the same time and it's never sort of explained on what criteria and how it makes a decision on whether or not to be uh, to, to apply its values and standards or on what grounds it decides not to do so but there's also another double standard, which is that uh, leaders are held to different uh, legal standards than the normal human being is. I mean, if you translated what, hap what happened with the Russian invasion uh, of Ukraine uh, in terms of your relationships with your neighbors, and you decide that your neighbor is threatening you and therefore you're going to burn his house down and take over his land, you would be probably picked up by police and put into jail. And yes, there are all the, uh, the mechanisms of the International Criminal Court, uh, crimes against humanity, you know, crimes of, of, of genocide. But at the end of the day, those rules are really seldom applied. As you said in your article, uh, James, you know, if we try to focus the discussion, you know, for example, on the issue of Ukraine, as basically an invasion by another country at another sovereign country, that the terms of what we are talking can be easily explained. But if you invoke uh, some more comprehensive notions of Western democracy versus Russia, then it becomes hypocritical. No? It becomes hypocritical. It's easier uh, to discuss uh, the Ukraine issue based on a more uh, a narrower uh, perspective, like sovereignty and invasion and subjugation. Uh, so it's basically an issue what, of international what, international law and the rule of yes, law, irrespective yes. of political system. Yes. Yes. Exactly. But uh, how do we start? You know, uh, one is to create a baseline for politicians, you know, as you said earlier. You no, know? one is to create a baseline for states. You no, know? do we start with both? You no, know? uh, how how do we how do we kick the ball? You no, know? how do we start well, the ball rolling? Ways, yeah. In some ways, I don't know if you have if, if you have that choice. Yeah. of you know deciding what do I start with first 
rather than starting with both. And the reason I think you may not have that choice is that, you know, in a sense, we're dealing with uh, the rise of what I would call a critical mass of leaders who think in civilizational rather than national terms. Uh, and that includes uh, Vladimir Putin. It includes Xi Jinping uh, of China. It includes Hungarian uh, Prime Minister Viktor Orban. It includes the Indian Prime Minister uh, Narendra Modi, who all think in civilizational terms rather than national terms. And in a sense, that's what you're seeing ha play out in Ukraine where one justification for, for the war, in, for the invasion is that Ukraine is, is Russia. That Russia's borders are determined not by what was internationally agreed and, and sanctioned, but they're determined by wherever there are Russian speakers and wherever there are, um, uh, there are, uh, people who adhere to Russian, uh, Russian culture. Uh, the South China Sea is justified in terms of uh, Chinese grievances, historic grievances. Uh, Narendra Modi's uh, policies are, are uh, conceived about the need for a Hindu state rather than what India was for uh, or, or claimed to be for much uh, much of its existence after uh, independence in 1947, namely be a multicultural, multilingual uh, uh, state in which Hindus, Muslims and others live together. That so is why... Yeah, you know, which, which is which basically is t taking us to uh, you know, to what uh, Samuel Huntington, the Harvard professor, called the clash of civilizations. And the clash of civilizations is, in fact, a clash of values and morals and ethics. Yeah, but in a way, we are confronting the reality of who will be the motive force? Who are the forces who will be motivated to jumpstart such a process? I think you in a way you are right that part of this part of this motive force will be religion together with civil society why no. because in a way they are not confronted with the realities of politics with the reality of political survival and national survival states and politicians no, compromise or become hypocritical because of these compelling realities of survival. Civil society and religions are not confronted with these realities at the start. They can invoke morality, ethics, they can involve, they can invoke visions, ethos, exactly because they are not immediately confronted by the realities of political power. Individual politicians individual states in the immediate are confronted with this reality. That's why they become hypocritical. Like 
A principled politician usually starts with clear principles, but if threatened with defeat or political survival, he will at the very least balance his ethical foundations with his political realities. And this also happens with states. Like when I was talking with an Indian friend, I was asking him, why are you helping Russia? Why are you helping Russia escape the embargo, the sanctions, etc.? He was saying that we are also being confronted by the reality of our nation. You know? And our, the, the requirements of being a nation is to survive, you know? uh, to have sources of energy, cheaper sources of energy, and to satisfy our population. So we, our population is not concerned about Ukraine. We are concerned with our nation state. So in a way, I agree with you that religion together with civil society, you know, social movements, will be the first or initial motive force for such an endeavor. I disagree that politicians and states should be the starting point. Because no, no, I, of, I, yeah. I, I, agree, I agree with you that you know, this is going to have to be a bottom-up process, not a top-down process. And it's going to be civil society, including religious groups, that will have to exert the pressure to, uh, to, to, to make progress on these issues. What I, what I, but you did, you did touch on a very important related issue when you talked about survival. And I think there we're talking about two kinds of survival and the conflation of what constitutes national interest and what doesn't constitute national interest. So with other words, survival of the state or the country, if you wish, is obviously uh, uh, an imperative. But what constitutes national interest is often what uh, defined as what constitutes the interest of the party or the people in power who want to maintain their yes. uh, their power rather yes. than what may or may not constitute national interest which takes us really to uh, uh, to the beginning of this conversation in the sense that what we're talking about is gradual and evolutionary perhaps even generational change rather than change overnight but it it does have to do with politicians political leaders being held accountable uh and being also held accountable to the fact that what you know that the next election cycle and their interest in the next election cycle may not be what is the nation's interest I agree, James. No? I agree that uh, this is generational. No? Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure if we, we will even see the start of this process in our generation. <laughs> but uh, uh, I think this, this evolutionary uh, debate has also been a debate of forces pushing for such a yardstick. No? I can still remember the debates in the first and second international, <laughs> if you're familiar with that. 
between uh, sure. between uh, Rosa Luxemburg and Utsky and Bernstein. No? Uh, uh, the problem with the evolutionary is that if it takes too long, then there are it usually regresses back to the fundamental problem of inequality of oppression. No, uh, uh, so uh, at a certain point, there must be a balance between uh, uh, achieving such goals in terms of measurable uh, moments rather than an, a long evolutionary process of change, which is subject to a lot of reversals. As uh, uh, to quote Bernstein on how to put a spoonful of sugar in a salty capitalist sea and transforming it into a socialist sea. No? I think that by itself, that is problematic. No? So how do you try to, to, to create some tangible moments in the process, which not only will inspire generations advocating such changes, but which can also be measurement that you are moving uh, positively towards a particular goal. I, I don't want to just put it as an evolutionary process with no clear targets and key moments. Uh, of no, course, I, I, that is a subject of a bigger discussion. <laughs> no. uh, yeah, but uh, and it's a discussion yeah. one should have, um, and it's almost uh, an, uh, a note to end on in this discussion. But I do want to take it, take what you just said one step further. Because what you're really saying is we need to have a roadmap. Yes. And there need to be clear milestones on that roadmap. Yes. yes. Uh, that if I if if I read you correctly, and I would agree with that, but I think to in order to be able to um, to establish that road roadmap, you're gonna need to be able to forge an alliance. A civil society alliance yes. that is strong enough to exert pressure. Yes. Um, and you know, we may or may not be at the beginning of that. Uh, with um, in the in the in, as part of the uh, the G20 in Indonesia this year, with the attempts at uh, creating a, a consensus in in the religious tax. Or the religion tack of that uh, G20 summit um, on on what are shared civilizational values. I think the jury is out on whether that will succeed, but there certainly is uh, a lot of interesting and positive thinking going on in the run up to the religion 20. And if they do pull it off you already have the beginnings of a very powerful alliance. Yeah. I think we don't have to start with zero, James. No, uh, For example, in our part of the world, in ASEAN, no? I think there's a possibility to have a certain level of unity at a particular project like Myanmar. No? For an alliance like the ASEAN, which is basically uh, based on the least common denominator, no? Uh, an alliance which is uh, very pragmatic. At the very least, we can have some elements of an advance 
For example, an moral, ethical, and political yardstick for a state, a junta like Myanmar. As a, as a, as, as a particular victory no? or starting point. For example, in the EU, which is more advanced than ASEAN, which is uh, a coalition or a community not only of interests, but of values. No? I think you need something or a decision, for example, on Orban, on Hungary, no? uh, to say that we are not simply a community for accommodation. We can make decisions based on a moral, ethical yardstick, and we can do that with Orban. No? So uh, uh, these are just uh, tentative examples that uh, 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 civil society, religion, uh, states can push for in the immediate as an example of a yardstick. No, I agree with you, and I think you're, you know, you've seen the first steps uh, actually in Europe with regard to Hungary and, and Viktor Orban with the um, refusal to uh, uh, pay out $7.5 billion in uh, aid that Hungary was expecting to get because of uh, the ba rolling back of the rule of law in Hungary. ASEAN definitely is an interesting example because ASEAN on a lot of different levels has been very pragmatic in the way that it has approached uh, putting together the Association of Southeast Asian Nations and maintaining some degree of stability and peace in a, in a region that was long torn by conflict and war. The problem, of course, with that is that ASEAN, you know, ASEAN is based on indeed uh, least, you know, smallest common denominator principles yes rather than on uh, a set of values, ethics, morals, whatever you want to call it. I think, uh, you know, this has been a really fascinating discussion. And hopefully uh, the first of many such discussions um, as we mull these things over. Ronald, thank you very much for joining this show. Pleasure, James. Thank you very much. I've learned from your contribution in this discussion, and it's a discussion that I hope we really will continue. Hopefully, this won't be the last, and uh, we'll, we'll have more interesting podcasts in the future. And let thank me say so thank, much, thank you. And let me say thank you to our listeners. And we And I look forward to seeing you or at least uh, hearing you on my next podcast. All the best and take care. Same to you, James.